For over 25 years, the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has strived to help shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous. As public virtue declines, so have many of our economic, political, and religious freedoms. On December 6th, Acton invites you to join us at our Public Spirit and Public Virtue Conference in Washington, D.C. This is your chance to engage with notable speakers and discover how to remain a civilization marked by order and public tranquility. To register or learn more, visit acton.org slash events. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G slash events. So a lot of the allies, their heart's not really in a fight. I mean, and the Germans just want revenge. And, and for them, they finally are able to solidify as a nation and come together. And I think it's important to ask ourselves that question today. Can we do that again? I mean, if we need to. And, and I think the answer is, is not an obvious yes. That was Ray Nostein, lead editor of the North State Journal Opinion Section, formerly of the Acton Institute, still a good friend of us here, and he is with us this week uh, as part of our Upstream segment, talking about Christopher Nolan's new war epic, Dunkirk. And uh, we're glad to have you along with us here on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. This is Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. we got a good episode for you today. We'll be talking in just a few moments with Seth Barty. Uh, and Seth Barty is going to be with us here at the Acton Institute. We'll be talking with him about his lecture that's coming up as part of our Acton Lecture Series. He's going to be here on August 10th in the Mark Murray Auditorium, speaking on the topic of Russell Kirk's wisdom on leisure, work, and how Christians can best impact society. Lecture title is The Hard Work of Leisure. Seth Barty is uh, currently serving as a visiting scholar at the Russell Kirk Center for cultural renewal up the road in Macosta, Michigan. We're looking forward to having him with us on the 10th of August. And you can join us. Head over to acton.org slash events to register for that. Tickets cost $15 for the general public. Students get a little bit of a break on that, $10. You get lunch, you get a good lecture, a good Q&A session, and a good bit of intellectual stimulation uh, as the dog days of summer roll in. So join us on uh, August 10th. Head over to acton.org events. Uh, acton.org slash events, I should say for uh, all the information on this event and other things coming up in the world of the Acton Institute. We'll be talking with Seth Barty here on the podcast in just a few moments, but we're going to lead off this week with Bruce Edward Walker, who is uh, in studio talking with Ray Nostein. Ray, Ray is joining us via phone from uh, North Carolina. The North State Journal is uh, a statewide paper in the great state of North Carolina. Ray, uh, the chief editor on the opinion page over there, uh, he's going to join us to talk about the movie Dunkirk, which is burning it up at the box office right now. Uh, so without further ado, let's head over to Upstream with uh, Bruce Edward Walker here on Radio Free Acton. Hello and welcome to Upstream, where culture is upstream from politics. Today we're going to be talking about a movie that has just been getting rave, rave reviews and uh, it's not exactly a sleeper hit, but it has surprised a lot of people because it is actually blowing out of the water a lot of the superhero tent movies that are out in July and have been out since June, and that is Dunkirk. My 
guest will be Ray Notstein, a former full-time employee of Acton and a regular contributor who has uh, written a great review that is on the Acton Power blog. How are you doing, Ray? I'm doing real well. Thanks, Bruce. Well, terrific. Well, let's get started. I mean, um, we've seen the movie. I actually saw it on the night it, w- it was released, and I thought I might have missed a lot by seeing it in a smaller theater, so I went back yesterday and saw it in IMAX, and it was really, really well worth the effort, so I'm, I'm, I'm very glad I did. There's a lot of things that I picked up that uh, I missed the first time around. So give us your thoughts on this, and, and let us know why an acting audience would be interested in seeing this movie. Sure, that's a great question. I think when I first sat down and saw it, I was a little disappointed at first because this movie, you know, at the very outset, I had a little bit of disappointment because it doesn't really contextualize what is happening. So Christopher Nolan just jumps right into the action. Of course, you have that first scene where you have the flyers dropping from the Luftwaffe telling um, the British soldiers and the French soldiers especially to get out of Dodge. I mean, to, to run and surrender, uh, surrender to our army. We have you completely surrounded. So – you know, if you don't have any context for history, this may at first confuse you a little bit. I think it's important to have that context of what's going on. And, and students of history will have a, a much stronger context than maybe a younger generation or people who haven't studied World War II. I think Nolan's very effective in drawing you in. I mean, you see it in IMAX where I haven't, so you even probably had a stronger feel, kind of feel like you're part of the action. And yes, very one of the much things so. that uh, I think is a positive with some of the limited dialogue is it makes the audience uh, more of an observer in the sense that you're drawn into this action and you feel part of the story or the narrative that's going on. And so you have plenty of action. Why I think it's important for acting is many reasons, and um, we can talk about this a little bit more too. But, uh, I, I think a really strong point is, um, you know, you have a sort of situation, you know, I, and people that know history know the term phony war. The British and the French had been in it, not really seeing any action. The British Expeditionary Force was sent to the continent of Europe after the German invasion of Poland. Uh, Germany is running roughshod across the continent. The British get there, but there's not a lot of action for a while. Um, it's kind of sitting around waiting for Germany to possibly attack and just not a whole lot's going on for a while, and Churchill had just become prime minister like 17 days earlier, um, taking over for Neville Chamberlain. And so, you know, there, there's no sense of uh, greater camaraderie yet and, and no reaction to a crisis because of not, not a lot's going on at first. And then you have the Germans just uh, – Hitler was becoming very overconfident, um, and rightfully so. I mean, after this invasion of – France and uh, Belgium. I mean, the Belgian army capitulates rather quickly um, without even telling the British who needed them, who needed the help for them to hold up the line. And they they they, they smashed through the Argonne Forest, which the French were not expecting. And they sent some of their worst troops to defend that area because they didn't think that they could get through that area very fast. And, and they just kind of stormed through with that famous German blitzkrieg. The British, the French are on the run, and I think. The thing that's kind of important to understand for an acting audience and people who are interested in moral formation is how do we respond to such a crisis like this where if you, you can't really understand it unless you lived it. How do we respond as a people uh, to freedom, to democracy, to defend those, those great um, traditions in Western civilization? 
And what happens, um, you know, we'll get into a little bit more, maybe more of the details of what happens at Dunkirk, but the British response is um, very stoic. It's a stiff upper lip. I mean, Churchill, as a leader, uh, there was a lot of people who were nervous about Churchill taking power. And then after Dunkirk, there, nobody really questions his leadership during the war ever again because he's able to uh, rise to the occasion, help inspire the British people. Oh, and right. you've heard of this term, the Dunkirk spirit, which is a part of the English lexicon today. Yes. And it really um, solidified the British resolve to stand alone at this time. Um, well, it was really so, the, the, his first public stemwinder of a speech that he gave that galvanized the, the public saying, yes, this was a, a, a terrible defeat. Yeah, but, absolutely. I was just going to say it's a very infamous speech. Um, you know, but Churchill was quick to remind the English uh, people that, you know, this is not a success. This was a rout. Um, it, it wasn't just the men. I mean, originally Churchill thought in the, in the British government, I mean, the situation was so dire that there were people in Churchill's cabinet saying, you have to surrender. You have to concede to the Germans. You have to sue for terms of peace. And um, it, obviously that's not something Churchill wanted to do. And they originally thought maybe they could get 40,000 40, British troops out of Dunkirk. I mean, when you're talking about over 200,000 to help this defend the homeland um, in Europe. I mean, this, the situation was so dire that Churchill considered using gas in case the Germans attacked the, the, the British shores. So, I mean, you know, gas hadn't been used since World War One, and um, it, it just it just kind of showed you the dire situation. So for Acton um, readers and people who are fans of Acton, I think it's important to look at, you know, we talk about how messed up society is today, how um, forlorn we are in many situations, um, not just with our government, but just the moral foundations of society, how the British people were able to come together and, and, and um, really for the first time since this war come together because this is only like 21 years after the Great War. We just had a complete slaughter after Europe. So a lot of the Allies don't – their heart's not really in a fight, I mean, and the Germans just want revenge. And, and for them, they finally are able to solidify as a nation and come together. And I think it's important to ask ourselves – that question today, can we do that again? I mean, if we need to, and, and I think the answer is, is not an obvious yes. Well, I, I, think one of the, I think one of the more wonderful things about it as well is, yes, um, you, you have the fighter pilot that's uh, played by Tom Hardy, who is, you know, obviously an Air Force individual, and uh, you have the, the soldiers who are heroic on the beaches, even though they're, they're suffering defeat and they're waiting to be evacuated. But the real heroes are Mr. Dawson and the people like him, the civilians who take their boats, the civilians who have already lost children in the war effort, who take their, their personal craft. And we're, talking, we're not talking about personal craft named Juggernaut or uh, the Demon or something like that. These are you know weekend yachts that are named Moonstone and Mimosa. I mean, these very genteel names and these very refined, genteel individuals who are uh, drink a lot of tea. So if there's any people who are offended by that, I'll, I'll give them a, a spoiler alert right now. But they, right. Go, they go out uh, and they risk life and limb and the life and limb of their, their children to go out and perform this very heroic and very Christian act of evacuating people from the from the beaches of Dunkirk. It, it's, 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 it's an amazing effort, and uh, it's always been something that's fascinated me since uh, uh, reading Paul Gallico's The Snow Goose back in the day, which is uh, pretty much a, a similar circumstance. It was turned into a movie 
uh, with uh, Richard Harris and Jenny Agutter in 1971, but uh, uh, with equally uh, tragic overtones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of historians, too, talk about the Dunkirk myth in the sense that some of the civilian heroics is overplayed. But, I mean, people of that generation, um, it, it was a big deal to them, and it was a, it was an important moment. In talking about the sense of people coming together, it was that situation like, you know, when you had the period of the phony war where there wasn't much action going on, people weren't even sure if the Germans were really going to attack France and, um, you know, um, bomb bomb uh, the English homeland. People weren't sure if this was actually going to happen. I mean, we, we, we have hindsight and we know, we know what happens, but there wasn't a lot of seriousness that you see during Dunkirk and after Dunkirk, even for the Americans. I mean, you know, you know, it's still months and months away from the attack on Pearl Harbor. And um, this kind of solidified America's uh, greater interest in the war um, with Dunkirk because the press was just uh, going crazy with covering the story and seeing what was happening. Let's, let's pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about the structure of the film. It's actually three stories that uh, are kind of woven together. One is the air battle, and that uh, takes course over the course of an hour. And then there's the, uh, the civilians on the sea, and that it takes place over the course of one day. And then there are the soldiers waiting to be evacuated on the, the mole, the, the beach at Dunkirk, and that takes place over the course of one week. And, of course, there's going to be some interlap where you're, you're seeing Mr. Dawson on his boat sees Tom Hardy fly overhead in a, in a dogfight. But it, it, it's, it's a really uh, innovative mode of storytelling that uh, you don't see very often in the films. But, but th- I think that's just a credit to uh, the director, Christopher Nolan, because he, he does that a lot in almost all of his movies where he just he plays with time. Yeah, the pacing I thought was very effective by Christopher Nolan. One of the things, it just keeps you on your seat. I, I enjoyed, um, you know, at first I didn't quite realize what he was doing with the pacing, but as it draws you in, you understand the whole cinematography as a whole was very powerful in this film. The pacing was very powerful. You have the stories just kind of climaxing and culminating all together at once, and I thought that was very effective. And, and you know, uh, the few survivors, the very few, uh, well, you know, I think less than less than uh, 12 or 10 survivors of Dunkirk that have spoken about this film, you know, they talk about the accuracy. They say it, they say it, it represents well their experiences. So I thought that was very effective, and I think you do get a sense of that just sort of forlorn nature of many of the soldiers as they were waiting for those ships to come because at first it didn't look like they were going to get off the beach at all. Right. And, and this is a movie that has some really high quality talent, some fantastic actors. And a lot of them just, uh, bury themselves in roles where they don't even, their characters don't even have a name. I'm, I'm thinking of Killian Murphy's, uh, character. Very, very powerful. Doesn't even have a name, but he, he is all part of, of the fabric of the heroism that went on that day. And um, unfortunately, his, uh, uh, his character is somewhat less than heroic, but uh, has very good reasons for being that way. But I'm, I'm also thinking of Mark Rylance, who is just right. basically steals the movie from uh, thespians such as Kenneth Branagh, who is uh, absolutely wonderful in his stoicism through the entire movie. And then you have uh, Tom Hardy, 
who, uh, frankly, I'd buy a ticket just to watch the guy eat cornflakes. And he uh, spends most of his movie in an airplane mumbling orders and with his, his face covered. And you really, right. don't, you really don't see his face fully full on until the very end of the film. And I, I think it's uh, it, just a wonderful cast who does a, a wonderful, wonderful individual jobs in the service of a greater whole. There, there's no one chewing scenery or uh, hamming it up at all. Absolutely. I tell you, Mark Rylance, I thought, was exceptional. He's, a, he's just a great actor in Kenneth Branagh. Uh, another great actor. And those were two that stood out to me. Um, what I thought was interesting was that it, instead of having this bat character development where we know these guys' stories or stories about their right. family or uh, Precisely. You know, why they're in the war, we have them sort of melded together as being sort of a common element, a common um, group instead of just this lone heroic figure and um, how they just sort of, their fate is tied together to some degree. And I thought that was very powerful. I thought Christopher Nolan did a very good job of, of telling the overarching story in a very condensed time frame. I mean, we're talking an hour and 47. It's not like a Lawrence of Arabia film, right? It's hours and hours. Oh, no. It, 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 it's, a, it's a condensed epic. And, and as you mentioned uh before the, the the dialogue is minimal, which is fantastic because these are not men who are going to talk their way out of the situation. They're they are men that have to take action in order to make something happen. Absolutely, and I thought that was um, I appreciated that. I mean, I think you know Hollywood loves World War II films, and um, you know as good as Saving Private Ryan can be, it sort of has this not a fan this hokey element that not a fan in some ways takes away from the story of. Uh, of Europe, of, of some of the uh, American uh, operations in Europe, and you have this hokey element. And I think Nolan succeeds in, in not going down some of those roads that, um, you know, it's just a, a, just trying to be a tearjerker alone or trying to force this emotional, um, react, visceral reaction out of you, which I think there, there could be a little bit of that towards the end. But, I mean, that's not his overarching theme. His overarching theme, I think, is to to show you the story as an observer and, and help to come to some of your own conclusions about the film. It certainly shows the bravery that took on and defend Western civilization, but that's not the, I mean, that's, that's an element that he does through an overarching telling of the story. Right. The emotional response is, is more organic to the story than uh, had it been manipulated as Spielberg does in uh, Saving Private Ryan, as I intimated earlier. Not a fan of the film. I think that he does a, a really good job of uh, Omaha Beach, but after that it, it just kind of like uh, fades into ridiculousness. And the, the, the one thing that uh, you bring up in your review on the Acton Power blog that I totally agree with you is this it is not gory i mean there there is implied violence you see violence you see people shot you see uh airplanes go into the water however you you're not seeing wide open gaping wounds and slow motion shots this is this is not bonnie and clyde of world war ii this is not a sam peckinpah movie it, it's it's done with with class and taste and it, it's so refreshing 
you can depict the horrors of war, but the, a lot of the horrors of war have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, the, the viscera that, that you might see. It has more to do with the suspense, the not knowing what's going to happen, where the next uh, bullet, what direction it might come from. It's the, the not knowing. It's more Hitchcock than it is Peckinpah. Yeah, that's a very good point. I didn't, I didn't think about the Hitchcock aspect of the film in terms of being a little bit more suspenseful. Because you're right. I mean, besides the besides the soldier who's burning in the water, or you know, he kind of has to decide if I'm going to stay underwater or, or go up towards the flames. You don't really see, and, and that's pretty mild in, in terms of the war genre of films now. Um, you don't really see the gory, open wound, sucking chest wounds, and and guts and, and limbs flying everywhere. And I think Nolan probably—I I don't want to speak for him per se—but I, I think he probably didn't want to have that take away from the desperation of the whole, to show the whole desperation of what was happening and the whole um, greater sacrifice as a group together instead of just um, showing individuals because this really is a film that I think does a good job of showing the sweeping nature of the forlorn desperation that the Allies actually are in. And, um, you know, that's an important point that you made there. Thank you, Ray. Uh, speaking with Ray Notstein on Dunkirk, and we're going to wrap it up for this week. I'm your host for Upstream, Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Bruce. And today I'll be speaking with Seth Barty, who will be here at Acton on August 10th to speak on Russell Kirk and the subject of leisure. And no, that has nothing to do with a leisure suit that Russell Kirk might have owned back in the 1970s. Now, Seth Barty earned his Ph.D. in intellectual history from Virginia Tech in 2014. His dissertation was entitled Imagination Movers, the Creation of Conservative Counter-Narratives in Reaction to Consensus Liberalism. It's a consideration of the conservative movement from 1953 until 2010. In 2018, next year, he will publish a chapter in a collection of essays titled The Resurgent Right to be published by Oxford University Press. He teaches history at East Tennessee State University, and since 2014, he has served as a visiting scholar at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. Hello, Seth. Hey, Bruce. How's it going? It's going very well, sir. You'll be speaking here at Acton, and um, your, your, your topic is very interesting. I'm, I'm quite familiar with uh, Russell Kirk, although I, I have to say I'm not as familiar with uh, his discussion of leisure. But having said that, I am more than familiar with uh, Leisure, the Basics of Culture by Joseph Pieper. So explain to me what you mean by leisure, what Kirk means by leisure, and, and then see if you can't tie it together with what, what Pieper said. Yeah, so, um, and, and thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, right, so it, it's, it's really interesting. Russell Kirk, um, when I started reading him for my dissertation research, even before, he, he talked a lot about leisure. Um, you know, at first, like most people, I really didn't have a good understanding. I mean, I thought leisure is sort of, you know, doing whatever you want to do on the weekends and, you know, playing golf and, and whatever. Um, one of the things that's very interesting about Russell Kirk is he's really reacting to that progressive era mindset that was very much around um, when he when he was born. So you'll find throughout um, his final uh, autobiography, The Sword of Imagination, you know, he writes about 
um, you know, what happened in Plymouth, Michigan, and Detroit. Um, and he looks around basically and really sort of sees a conflation of the progressive ideal and Marxism as putting such an emphasis on hands-on work that what it's doing is it's creating, it's creating really the corporate man, but what's really not happening is there's not the general educated human, whether that's man or woman, whatever, um, who's having time to do things, what he would say, to create the philosophical habit of mind that they're given time to sort of read, write, and contemplate. And, you know, if maybe you're not on that side, like you and I are, Bruce, and, you know, you might think, well, hey, you know, I'd love to have 12 hours a day to read and write. As we know, that's not something easy to do. And as you move much higher up the food chain, way, way higher than, than I am, you know, and uh, a, a renowned academic, I mean, leisure really is hard work and for Russell Kirk, one of the, I think, downfalls in American society is that there's a misconception of sort of creating a type of leader that has the time to do that. For him, it's not just to say, well, you know, this or that leader's had time to read Aristotle and they understand what the political life is really about. But, you know, the soul of the civilization is literally at stake. If we don't have scholars who have the ability to know sort of right from wrong and that classical and Christian understanding, then we might end up in a situation that is sort of very detrimental, very bad. Um, so that's sort of where I come at it, at least from the side of leisure. So he's really reintroducing this concept and the fact that he's introducing it in 1953 as the American economy is booming. I mean, you know, just think about what's going on around the country. I mean, people are, um, literally enjoying the accumulation of wealth like never before, here comes in Russell Kirk to criticize that. So I think that's a fascinating aspect as well. Well, in uh, a previous conversation that you and I had, Seth, you, you had, uh, and uh, previously just now, you said that uh, uh, much of the attitude changed during the First World War. What exactly happened to change the American and evangelical view of work? that it wasn't primarily something that one does with your body, but it's also something that you do with your mind. Uh, you, you, you earn your money during the day, and then uh, you improve your mind uh, in your leisure time, your mind and your soul. Right. Great question and, and observation. Well, there are a couple things. So on that progressive end, uh, around 1910, uh, Mark Knoll's uh, book, he, where he talks about sort of the decisive turning point, uh, in Christianity, one of the things he'll, he'll point to is the World Missions Conference of 1910 in Scotland that is absolutely key. And one of the things of, about the Mission Conference, the reason he sees it as a turning point, is uh, there's a real emphasis on making the idea of Christianity um, and missions to be something that's a really um, on-the-ground kind of work, you know, um, Translating the Bible into more vernacular language, getting more missionaries up, that's fine. Okay. Now, here up comes the First World War. Um, in my own master's and some of my doctoral research, I wrote um, where I covered some aspects of John Dewey. And one of the things that's really interesting, you'll even see this from Dewey and George Sandiana as well, who Russell Kirk writes about uh, in a conservative mind. Also, you have from the American side really this view that one of the things that has led Europe into this abyss, into this malaise of war, 
of course, you know, never mind that America's done its own sort of empire building, but at least from this side of the Atlantic, um, there was a view that maybe these Europeans had too much leisure. They had too much time, that they're too focused on philosophy, um, you know, that they're too well-read, and it's these ideas, they're so ideational. You really find this in John Dewey, who is very influential at this time, uh, that they were so ideational, they were, they were not practical enough, and, that, and indeed it's led them to forget about the real, what John Dewey would have called the cash value of ideas where Americans and the United States can really differentiate itself and to make sure that we never fall into the same trap is to be more practical, to flesh out more of these ideas, to forget about questions like, you know, how many angels can fit on the sort of the head of a needle and all these sort of theological uh, controversies. And um, so the First World War, as I look back at it uh, more and more, and there are other historians who cover some of this, that progressive spirit, and this is, this is where I try to take it. That progressive spirit, it's very much ingrained um, in us as Americans. Right? We're doers. Thinking's fine. Education's fine. You know, just like where my alma mater, one of my alma maters, Virginia Tech, one of our mottos is that I may serve. It's okay to be smart. It's okay to know philosophy, but flesh that out. How is that going to flesh out into society? What's the more practical aim? Russell Kirk looks back on that. Right, his work can be fleshed out. The conservative mind has. We can think about ways in which it is very applicable to our world and has been applied to institutions. I can name some of those institutions if you want to talk about that. But here, Russell Kirk comes in and says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You know, if, if we're not careful here, we're going to dump something that sooner or later we're going to wish that we had maybe just modified a bit." Okay, well, is it, isn't there a, a danger, though, when one aspires to have a philosopher king, so to speak, that uh, you'll veer too far to the side of sophistry? The last thing we need is uh, Hamlet in, as a world leader who is just going to be contemplating his, his own name. Sure. Right, and that, that's, that's a, sort of a perfect segue into the sort of the practicality and observations of the talk. So um, one of the... I think one of the ironies or one of the constant questions um, of the American Christian is, especially the American evangelical Christian, who at least would adhere to some sort of um, what we might call conservative orthodoxy or, you know, doctrinaire biblical beliefs, biblical literalism, is how can we haven't had more influence, right? Um, when I was growing up during the culture wars of the 1990s, one of the things that I continually heard um, in churches is that we need to influence culture. You know, we need to get Christians, we need to get Christian women and men into academia, um, into journalism, and in order to sort of, you know, uh, turn things back, we need to get Christians in office. Um, this begins to happen some, but really at, at the end of the day, um, there's a great shift that I see that happens around um, – September 11th, um, 2001, that's sort of the coming age for my generation and sort of older millennials, right? Uh, when September 11th happens, one of the things that, though, that I noticed on the evangelical sides of this sort of desire to influence culture at large, domestic culture, Western culture, begins to wane a bit. The expectation was, and if you go back in some of those, um, 
no, I say primary documents. If you go back to back issues of World Magazine, back issues of Christianity Today, um, back issues of um, um, some of these Southern Baptist SBC publications, you know, you can look, and there were evangelicals that thought, you know, this is a real opportunity. This is it. You know, here are these things. We've been on this wayward path. We've been judged for it. You know, this is the time Americans at large are going to, you know, sort of repent. There's sort of the belief that there would sort of be a third great awakening, a great revival uh, of the contemporary or postmodern era. Well, guess what? As we all know here on the podcast, that does not happen. Um, In fact, we see, um, you know, culture – we see we see crime that's worse than ever. I mean, at my alma mater, Virginia Tech, I mean, we have the the tragic shootings. We think of people like Kermit Gosnell and the uh, uncovering of the his uh, abortion clinic in Philadelphia. I mean, there all these things um, take place despite all of that. There is a shift, which one can see in churches that I saw across the board, not just in one churches or two churches, but by and large, on the evangelical sides, a new emphasis on missions. Now, that sounds wonderful, right? Influence the world for the kingdom. And as most Christians, we believe that that's important to do, and we do do that. What really gets abandoned in all this is the life of the mind. So even just the ability to maybe um, have be a sophist, um, as you said, has really been impossible. Um, Around 2008, 2009, there are a series of books published. Andy Crouch, um, his, his important book, Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling, James Davis and Hunters, To Change the World. They see some of this, and they, you know, they sort of look at it and take a view. It's fine to be practical. It's fine to, vo- it's fine to volunteer. Most of us do it. It's fine to work in the soup kitchen. But at the end of the day, we need to develop leaders um, that have this philosophical habit of mind, but there's still sort of a pushback, uh, I believe, from evangelicals, and, and you know you can read some of this some places that really believe that Western culture is at an end, that there's no chance of really influencing influencing it for good, and we just may sort of should have abandoned it. So I actually advocate um, in my talk. Um, provocatively, I know it's a provocative talk, so I'm, I'm hoping for good conversation at the end of it, is a reorientation um, of uh, the Sunday school system, first part, um, educating lay people, finding new ways to implement um, implement some of these classical Christian sources um, into how we educate our lay people in churches. And I even go as far as to say, let's reallocate some of those world missions money to the domestic side so we can look at the long durée of culture um, and influencing American culture uh, for the church. Um, that might mean electoral electoral losses um, for the time being, but in the long run, which is what I'm interested in and others are interested in, and I think even James Davis, Davis and Hunter is interested in, this will, this will give us, um, I think, uh, greater gains in the, in the long run. Well, I suppose I would— rather be right and lose rather than be wrong and win. And uh, you and I travel in sometimes rarefied air, uh, both of us uh, um, 
meet at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. Let's get the full title in there to understand exactly what the mission of the Russell Kirk Center is. And we at Acton are heavily, heavily involved in using culture, using reading, using philosophy to comment on the world today and try to influence public policy and shift from uh, the egalitarian lie to the uh, the life of the mind, which is also the life of the spirit. Yeah, um, you know, uh, that's absolutely key. And, and, you know, one of the things um, I continually have conversations, I've had conversations since I was um, you know, a kid with pastors and the majority of churches. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really talking about, Hey, this is true about the small little church in Eastern Tennessee where I live. But I mean, by and large, um, with most, most churches and I see leaders, I see pastors seeking, Hey, you know, we're not quite getting it. Um, you know, what's the answer there, there is. So I actually say this, so mine's not just sort of this ephemeral dream, you know, oh, how now? You know, how nice that you know Professor Barty has this idea; it'll never happen. Well, there are actually churches that are starting to try to implement some of this, and and so Holy Trinity Anglican in Raleigh, North Carolina, one of uh, John Stott's graduate students, um, who is now a pastor, um, John Yates, um, has actually implemented a program similar to what I'm talking about, based on James Davison Hunter's New City Commons. Um, this idea of creating Christian leaders to impact the um, at least the, the Raleigh-Durham area. But here's the interesting thing about it, Bruce, and you're going to love this. They have to get in and read stuff like Augustine. They're having to read Thomas Hobbes. They're having to read John Locke. They're having to read these things and grapple with them. Um, it's a serious year-long program. And the idea, you know, the idea is not just, well, hey, you're going to, de- you know, develop this analytic ability so you can be a better real estate developer. <laughs> Whereas the idea is really doing this hard, difficult work, developing this philosophical habit of the mind to make people more virtuous, and dare I say it, in their daily transactions. And that's absolutely key. And, and if I could, you know, it, Russell Kirk, you know, I, I just kind of figured this out as I'm as I've done all this work and writing about him, right? His is really a conservatism of the soul, right? Russell Kirk, I think, would be just, I would think, with what they're doing at Holy Trinity, that I would I would think that, that Dr. Kirk would say, you know, they're, they're doing something here that's really important. They're getting people, they're sitting them down in this Russia society to have them read these books and read these works that are difficult to go in and, again, change these daily transactions. Oh, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. A virtuous people leads to a flourishing society. The sole principle that uh, I think is the sinew of all of Dr. Kirk's teaching is that uh, a belief in an enduring moral order and that humanity is inherently fallen, and we we will always fall short of the mark, but uh, that doesn't mean we can't aspire to attain that mark. Well, great. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Seth Barty, who will be here on August 10th at Acton uh, here in Grand Rapids, giving a speech entitled The Hard Work of Leisure. Seth Barty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It is that time of the podcast where we wrap things up and offer thanks. First of all, thanks to Seth Barty. 
who we uh, just talked with. He'll be here, uh, as we mentioned earlier, at the Acton Institute on August 10th, uh, 2017, uh, talking about the hard work of leisure, Russell Kirk's wisdom on leisure work and how Christians can best impact society. If you want to join us for that event, head over to acton.org slash events and register uh, $10 for students, $15 for the general public, and we look forward to seeing you on August 10th here at the Acton Building. Thanks as well to Ray Nostein, lead editor of the opinion section of the North State Journal, North Carolina's statewide paper. Uh, it's always good to hear from Ray. We really appreciate him taking the time to talk with us about Dunkirk, and hopefully that he will not be a stranger from the podcast here on out. Thanks as well to Bruce Edward Walker for joining us today once again in studio for Upstream and talking with Seth Barty as well. He did a great job as usual, and we always enjoy having Bruce around here at the Acton Institute. He keeps things lively. Thanks as well to Daniel Menjavar for his production work on this edition, and thank you to you, our listeners. We do appreciate uh, you joining us every week on Radio Free Acton, and if you haven't subscribed, if this is your first uh, episode of Radio Free Acton, hey, go back through the archives, give us a listen, maybe click the subscribe button. We're uh, available on iTunes and Google Play, and of course, uh, if there's anyone out there that you think would be interested in the work of the Acton Institute, Eh, send them a link to our podcast. That's a great way to introduce them to Acton and some of the things that we talk about on uh, on a pretty regular basis around here. In the meantime, thanks for joining us for Radio Free Acton. We'll talk again on future editions of the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Have a great day, everybody. Want to stay up to date on all things Acton? Visit acton.org today to learn about our resources. While you're there, remember to subscribe to Acton Notes, the free Acton newsletter, to get the latest news, blog posts, and event updates. By bringing together religion and business founded on sound economic principles, the Acton Institute fulfills its mission to promote a free and virtuous society. Again, you can subscribe today at acton.org.